Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Megan Ross. Megan is a writer, creative consultant, and journalist. She is the author of Milk Fever, published by Uhlanga Press in 2018, which is a collection of poetry. In Milk Fever, Megan writes about the uneasy truths of unexpected motherhood and all its emotional detritus. It explores the choices and misadventures of young womanhood, centering the personal as political in feminist and bold poetic style. She's also the author of several short stories and essays that have gone on to achieve critical acclaim. She's a recipient of the Brittle Paper Award for Fiction in 2017 and an Alumni Award for the Iceland Writers' Retreat in Reykjavik. She was also the finalist in the Gerald Clark, Miles Morland, Short Story Day Africa and Short Sharp Awards. Megan has worked in the book industry on both the copy and art aspects of book production for publishers across the African continent. She left her features writer's role at Glamour magazine to pursue a career in freelance writing and journalism in Bangkok. After returning to South Africa, her writing has featured in New Frame, The Mail and Guardian, Glamour, Brittle Paper, GQ, Proofrock, Catapult, New Coin, New Contrast, and The Kalahari Review. As a freelancer, she ran her own visual and communication studio and created work for a wide range of clients, including Lilith's South Africa. Megan is also the contributing editor at Iselle magazine. Megan has a Bachelor of Journalism and Media Studies degree, and now she works in advertising full-time at Retroviral. So today I'll be talking to Megan about motherhood, poetry, and the importance of telling our stories. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's start with Milk Fever, your collection of poetry that came out in 2018 and was a marker of some sort of your entry into motherhood. How and why did you begin creating this collection? I think it began as a response to what was quite a traumatic birth experience. So about three days after my son was born, I wrote a line of poetry. um, And I, I remember just scrabbling around for a pen and paper Um, while my child slept and I wrote a line and that line became a poem and that poem became the collection and it kind of felt like wearing a spacesuit on the planet of motherhood it was like my way to navigate very new and sometimes exciting but mostly terrifying planes that I had never been to before Um, and so milk fever was really my my kind of adjustment to motherhood um, and my means of doing that. I mean, I recognize that feeling of that compulsion to write things down in early motherhood. My little one is only eight months old at the moment. And I've just had this like urge to write everything down. Everything felt very important, um, but I really struggled to find the time. How did you manage to fit it all in at that very busy time of your life? I didn't sleep when baby slept, which is what you're supposed to do and what, you know, everyone tells you to do. Um, Instead, I drank too much coffee. And while he took his naps during the day, I wrote. um, And I was obviously very fortunate to have um, a very supportive partner 
who understood uh, and still understands how important writing is to me and for me. And I think he he particularly understood at that time that it was so important for my mental health as well to be writing and to feel like I hadn't failed in some way um, or failed my career by becoming a mom at a stage in my life where I wasn't really ready to become one. Um, so that's that's probably how I fitted it in. But sometimes I also don't know how I did it because I think I was so exhausted and I definitely think there have been a few years following on from this where I, I haven't written as much and I've just been like really tired and I think it's from pushing so hard when my son was born because I felt very like I felt very spurred on to write a lot more um you know and to like take every opportunity that I had to write you know I'd, I'd like walk and voice note myself while I was pushing his pram and if he fell asleep I'd you know, walk to a coffee shop and just write on the back of a till slip. So it was really just finding those moments whenever I could. Um, and sometimes to my detriment, I think. Sometimes I, I could have just enjoyed early motherhood a little bit more and been more present. Um, but I was young, so I forgive myself for that. I think forgiving ourselves for the mistakes we make or for the things that we did in a particular way in motherhood is so important in order to survive. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Um, and you mentioned that. You mentioned there that your motherhood was unexpected, that you weren't necessarily ready for becoming a mother. Tell us about discovering that you're going to become a mother and some of the thought processes that you went through at that time. Oh, well, I was 25 when I fell pregnant and my partner um, had come over to Thailand to visit me for Christmas time. And during that time, I fell pregnant. So it was very unplanned, um, very... Yeah, very unplanned and it was terrifying at first when I found out I was a few, I was a couple months shy of my 26th birthday and yeah, I saw these two lines on the pregnancy stick and then I made my partner run down to a 7-Eleven and go buy more and he came back, I think, what seemed to me at the time like an armful of them, but I think it was just a couple and I just did them all and I was pregnant and yeah, I was terrified. Um I think at some point I did choose it though. I remember quite clearly taking my scans to school where I was working and being quite excited to like show my colleagues in that, that, you know, had this little, little bean, as I called him at the time, um, gestating and yeah, but it definitely, it was not what I had. I had actually, <laughs> funny enough, at the beginning of that December, when my partner had just arrived, I'd had a friend over for some wine and she, we'd been talking about motherhood and, you know, if we ever planned on having kids and I said, no, I will never have babies. Books will be my babies. And obviously fate had a different idea because within a month I was pregnant um, and not with a book, but with an actual human child. So yeah, I, I think the experience, you know, it was a wild one. It was definitely wild. Um, you know, I can't wait to take my son back to Thailand to like show him my old stomping ground and where, you know, his kind of little life began as well. But it was very difficult uh, adjusting to the idea. And especially because, you know, having a family and sort of being a mom was not something that had been on my radar. Definitely not at that point, but for my future at all. I mean, I think as a writer, someone must have shouted plot twist somewhere along that <laughs> that pathway where you're going one way. I think I'd read somewhere that you were also planning to apply for a Fulbright scholarship, like you had all these plans and then life just 
sort of threw you a curveball. Um, but I can completely relate to the feeling of, you know, an adjustment. It took me a long time to feel ready to have children and to, you know, to to be able to commit that I wouldn't give up the writing part of myself in addition to being a mother um, and I would be able to find a balance. So I can relate to that feeling of, of uncertainty about what it would be like and then the slow, gradual warming up and sharing all the pictures and being generally excited about it. It's definitely an emotional roller coaster. That's all I can say to people when they ask what it's like. You also wrote a piece um, for Lilette's talk called We Need to Talk About Childbirth, where you talk about the importance of sharing our birth stories and about how strangely, as soon as a child is born, people tend to stop asking about a mother's state of mind and how she's feeling. For listeners who haven't read that piece, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think it's important to process our birth stories and to ask moms how they're doing in those early days? Well, birth is your very physical and emotional starting point for for motherhood, at least with baby this side of the world. And to have a traumatic birth and to feel like you aren't heard or that you're violated even uh, can really, besides being, you know, something that can start something like PTSD or, you know, really affect your mental health, um, it can also affect how you feel about your baby. Um, for me, as much as I wanted to bond with my son, uh, in the first, like, couple of weeks of after having him, because of my birth, I really struggled to connect with him. I was absolutely traumatized from what had happened to me. And I felt totally unheard, totally violated, and you know, as if no one, no one really understood or wanted to understand what I was going through at the time. And I think, you know, because birth, so much can happen during it, and so much can go right or wrong, but you know, it really can go off script, so to speak. It's so important to have that like little debriefing session afterwards, you know. I think so many people's mental health has been saved just by having a midwife or a nurse or even a family member just check in and be like, hey, how did that feel for you? Are you okay with what happened? Do you want to talk about it at all? Because even the people I know who've had like the most sort of simple, straightforward births have still felt some like, you know, um, complex feelings about it. Um, You know, whether it's to do with the pain or the weight or, you know, labor itself. So I just think it's so important for the mother and the child. And I know that Jen Putter from The New Normal is so brilliant at speaking about this and how, you know, essentially the, the mother is the start of the family and the mother should be centered in that a healthy mom, a happy mom, or at least a mother who, who is coping, um, does so much for the health of the whole family. Yeah, I can completely relate to those feelings. I also had an emergency C-section and a great deal of postpartum anxiety. And thankfully, with the help of medication and with the debrief that I had, I had a doula for my birth. And it was really an important thing to debrief with her sort of 10 days afterwards to talk about what had happened. Because sometimes when you're going through that experience, you... You so, it's just so visceral that having that outside person who's also witnessed what you went through is, is important. I think a witness to our stories, to hear our stories is always very, very important. Um, and medication and the help of community can really help you feel a lot stronger and definitely has for me. 
Do you think, though, that it's like this idea that early motherhood should be this blissful, perfect time that makes this experience of difficulty or disconnect that all that more awful? And what would you say to any new mom who isn't sure whether she needs help for her postnatal depression or anxiety or um, PTSD? It makes me fucking irate the way we center this single narrative of motherhood you know as this shining bastion of how it should be where it's so different for everyone um you know people differ um emotional states differ how you how long it takes for you to normally warm up to someone let alone a newborn baby differs from person to person so this whole idea that it should be pink and lovely and look like the cover of living and loving it just makes me crazy with rage because I just think it does so much damage as you say for people who might be feeling a little bit ambivalent about it I mean there's nothing worse than feeling crap and then being shown you know a a comparative you know of how you you should or um you know be feeling there's nothing worse and I think it just rubs salt in the wound that women aren't like allowed to you know, express how they're feeling and even fathers as well, you know, like I, th- I think that like all parents, birthing parents and and uh, the other parent alike um, are, are just expected to kind of get on and deal with it. And yeah, it's it's just so unfair. So I would say that if you're thinking that there might be something up, then there's probably more than likely something actually is up. And I would say seek help as soon as you feel those thoughts or those anxieties or, you know, those depressions kind of descending, just ask for help, whether it's speaking to your partner, a friend, or, you know, your midwife or doula, just reaching out and saying, look, I'm not, I'm not coping or I'm not feeling okay. And, and to, it takes a lot of bravery to say, I'm not okay. It really, really does, but you've just given birth. So you've got bravery and courage in spades. So definitely ask for help and try get to see a professional as soon as possible, whether it's a therapist to kind of debrief and talk through what's happened and how you're feeling. Um, or if it's medication, I mean, in my case, medication has saved my life so many times, I can't even tell you. But um, I would just say definitely, definitely voice how you're feeling, because you're not alone uh, for a start. There are so many other mothers and birthing parents who have gone through this that have felt ambivalent, that have, you know, felt anxious, felt depressed after the birth of their child and struggled to bond with their child. And so your your fears and however you're feeling are warranted and you deserve to be able to voice them and give voice to them and receive the help and treatment and support that you need. I think what you're saying there is so true because the, the problem with our brain when it's in an anxious or depressed or tricky state is that we believe everything that it's telling us and we also believe that it will be forever. And, and I know like there's so much emphasis put on the six-week check, like if you sort of pass your six-week check, then you're totally fine. And that wasn't the experience for me. It was I was sort of fine at six weeks. I was still buzzing on oxytocin. And then when that whole drenching in oxytocin sort of dipped down to back to normal levels it was really difficult to sort of work out why I was feeling so anxious and because I had been fine at my six-week check I sort of talked myself out of going to get help for, for, for what I think was a bit long um, and then once you do go you just the relief 
at admitting that you need help is just huge. And I would also agree with what you're saying. Just get it as soon as you can, even if you think there might be, if you think you think that there's something wrong, then yes. there is probably something wrong um, and that there's no shame in it as well. I think you write about the new normal um, Instagram account. is a fantastic one to follow for all new moms and just bench checking reality and some of the weird narratives we see about early motherhood and Instagram definitely promotes some of those like it's amazing look how beautiful it is <laughs> a bit yeah. hectically but on the other hand there are a huge number of accounts to follow that can make you feel really sane um, and heard so I recommend the new normal for one as well so seven years have passed since that those early rough days um how has feminism shaped your parenting in the interval and how has parenting shaped your feminism Oh, that's such a fantastic question. Wow. I think the the first and foremost thing um, for me has been that I have a son. So I, first of all, because I had a sister growing up and I, I just had this weird idea that I'd have a girl. It never crossed my mind that I'd have a son. And so having a boy, uh, it's made the, the task of parenting as a feminist and parenting in feminist ways so much more urgent for me. And it definitely did when he was little, um, you know, small things like my son had long hair and he'd often get comments, you know, from grown men about his hair. And I remember there was one particular gentleman who was so rude um, and very crude, actually. He said, oh, well, you know, pull down your pants and show us that you're a boy um and so being a feminist I've tried to respond to those moments you know with the care that my son needs and as, especially when he's hurt or, or sad trying to make sure that he can express himself um you know I'm just trying to raise a, a healthy boy who will be a healthy man one day and that feels like such an arduous task at times but I definitely think that having a boy has, has made it has made my feminism, has turned it into so much more of a practice, I think, like a practical application of all these beliefs that I've had, you know, making sure that he is someone who respects women and teaching him quite early on about racism and sexism and all these sorts of things that, you know, will should be shaping like the men around us, but often aren't. Um, and I think how parenting has shaped my feminism I've definitely become so much more child-centered. Um, I've realized that children are really the most, you know, in sort of endangered and vulnerable uh, population group. And it's made me so much more aware of children's rights and the human rights of these little people who rely on grown-ups for everything. Um, and it's also made me so aware of how important community is in terms of parenting as well um you know the feminist idea of having like an extended chosen family or village so to speak to help you raise your child has definitely been something that parenting has brought to the fore for me of course because you're just looking for that constant support and having a lot of family support around me has totally saved my life so many times so i think the other thing that you know my feminism in, in how it's shaped parenting is that I'm also quite aware of having a white male son in South Africa in 2022 and just trying to raise him to be better 
and to be a well-rounded little person who can express himself in healthy ways and you know doesn't feel stifled emotionally I think those have been things that have been top priorities for me thanks to my feminism I relate to everything that you've said there and this uh, the idea I think a lot of people think I suppose people with strange ideas about feminism that think, you know, feminism is a woman's issue or a queer issue. And in fact, it's an issue for everybody because we can't get to a more gender equal world unless everybody's doing the work on themselves and, you know, talking with one another kindly about what's going wrong. Um, so I think it is, it's a, a tr tricky one to raise a boy. Um, it's something that I look forward to seeing how I navigate it and how you can try to help them be better than, you know, the people in your life. And one of the previous guests on the show was talking about, you know, what your kids see you, you and your partner doing in the house and how much they take in just from mm -hmm. observing and thinking about, you know, like how do we shift, you know, the, the ways that, you know, domestic labor has become so gendered and is gendered, even when you push back against it wholeheartedly, it still tends yeah. to become really unequal. And so, yeah, it's really, really a fascinating thing to think about. I wonder, do you ever experience mom guilt and what do you feel guilty about and how do you tackle this? Oh, my goodness. I experience mom guilt in spades. I'm trying to think how I tackle it because I just constantly feel guilty about like not being an Instagram mom, not being present enough, not wanting to play. <laughs> I think that is one of the biggest things that like gets to me is that I really just don't want to be playing these boisterous boyish games you know I like I see my friends who who have sort of quieter children or children who enjoy reading and that and I'm just like oh and then I feel so guilty for feeling that way but um, I don't know if I found a way to cope with mom guilt yet I think a lot of it's done in retrospect so I kind of forgive myself in little stages for the mom I was before you know I think I at the moment, I'm going through a stage of forgiving who I was as a mother in my late 20s, um, you know, and just because I my priority was just to prove to everyone that I could do this, that not only was I a mom, but I was a successful writer and I was still who I was and I hadn't thrown everything away by becoming a mom, you know. So, yeah, a lot of like time now, I guess, at least subconsciously, I'm sort of forgiving that person um, and I'm sure later on <laughs> in a couple of years time I'll be forgiving who I am right now in my early 30s um, but I did also want to say that I think one of just to your previous question and your statement about labor and especially like domestic labor and being gendered in the home that's where I'm really really fortunate because my partner is never going to be one of those people who proclaims very loudly that he's a feminist but he's the person who makes sure that my son's school uniform is ironed, is hanging up in the morning. He makes us breakfast in the morning, gets us up, dresses my son, does his homework three times a week, and also um, makes his lunch and that. So a lot of what would be thought of as like a mother or a woman's role, my partner takes on like, and, and quite, <laughs> he's quite, um, not forceful, but he's quite insistent that those are the things that he's going to do. So I'm very fortunate in that respect where I don't have to be begging, you know, a partner to take on like the emotional load and that because he's very much there with me. And I mean, in actual fact, there's so many times where I look, look quite lazy in comparison to him. 
Um, so I'm very fortunate there, but that was one of the things when I first had a child that was very, very important to me that my child would see this like equal allocation of domestic labor and would see that, you know, even if it does end up being gendered, that not one person isn't doing far more than the other. That sounds fantastic. And it's really nice when people are proactive and, as you say, take on the emotional labor. Because so much, I think I spoke with um, Bessel Vandenberg in the second episode of the season about it's not only about who does the grocery shopping, it's about who makes the list for going to get the groceries as well. And That's the thinking true. process is, is so important as well because that is labor. It takes you out of being creative or thinking about your writing when you do those domestic chores. Um, but you've spoken a lot about the importance for you of of not abandoning this identity of a writer when you've had to take on the identity of a mother. And I'd love to talk a bit more about your writing now. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work on Iselle magazine and what you've been working to achieve there? So Iselle is a very, very special project. Um, the magazine was started by Ukamaka Olisakwe, who is a phenomenal Nigerian writer based in the States. Um, as poetry editor, I was originally, I think I edited some non-fiction pieces in the beginning, all fiction pieces, I can't actually remember, sorry, my memory's terrible. Um, but then moving on from that, uh, Uka made me the poetry editor, which was just so special. Um, it was such a joyous time for me in that I could still feel connected to the literary world, even though I work in advertising now. Um, that there was still this like space that existed in me and reading poetry is hardly a, like you know a boring task it's 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 so exciting to be reading new voices and be promoting African voices um, you know across across the continent and the uh, diaspora so that's been so exciting unfortunately I've had to step back now because work is just too hectic so I'm now just a contributing editor I'm no longer the poetry editor which was a very hard thing to let go of but I had to you know really take a look at my schedule and see you know for my mental health what's what I could try and shift out because I have bipolar and it's just so important to manage my stress levels because of it um so, yeah, and I mean, Esele, along with Lawwear and other literary magazines are really shaping and changing the way that people approach poetry on the continent, you know, and, and, and fiction and nonfiction, um, you know, promoting African voices across the literary world and really champion, championing uh, African women's voices as well, which has been so special. Um, and, you know, we were mentioned in the New York Times, so that recognition is there of, of what the magazines are doing. You know, it's it's like Duk um, from Namibia, Lolwe, Esele. You know, there's a group of new magazines that are really pushing the boundaries and making sure that the literature that we're reading reflects our realities around us. Mm, that sounds fantastic. You've also written short stories yourself to great acclaim. What are you working on now and what is the experience of writing like for you? So I've actually just finished my second novel. Um, the first one was a total flop and my agent very rightly said it's not going to work. But I think I needed to write all that crap out. So I wrote that and then I wrote my second novel this year in the first three months of the year. So that is busy sitting, cooking somewhere with um, a publisher, hopefully. I'm still waiting to hear like news and stuff on that. So 
I haven't written short fiction in so long because of focusing uh, quite wholly on my novel. But then I actually wrote a short story last week, which was quite exciting and out of the blue. And I was really, you know, amazed that I could still write a short story and kind of play with words and, you know, play with form like that again. So that was really, really cool. Um, and in terms of what I'm working on, I'm definitely going to start looking at another novel. And I'd like to get my short story collection out into the world at some point. So that's something I definitely need to concentrate on um, when I have time. But until then, it's it's really uh, my novel that's that my agent has shopped around to publishers. That that's my priority for the moment. Um, so I suppose that will hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything um, will become more of a business issue and like the business side of writing will come to the fore um, in the near future with that book. Um, but it would be lovely at some point to have a grant or something so I can focus more on writing and yeah, just write for not so much living, but yeah, just just get to focus on on the work for a little bit. I think the writing is like parenting in that way and that it requires presence and you need to be there to actually get the, to see the results. Um, and it's really hard to fit it in amongst the cracks uh, or let, you know, let it be your light amongst the cracks. Um, but it's amazing that you've managed to achieve that and to write a novel uh, so quickly. And I wish you all the best with your, with your agent and with the publications. I hope to see it on shows soon. I'm sure many of us will be eagerly waiting to read it. And I have three, <laughs> really, I mean, it's it's amazing. I'm always proud to read fellow South Africans and fellow Africans' work because I think we do have unique takes on the world that, that need more airtime. So I look forward to your book very much. And I have three last questions for, for you that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And the first is, what is a book that has inspired your feminism? Okay, so this book is probably not... Um probably not seen as like a central feminist text by any means, but I definitely think that um, Deborah Levy's Hot Milk, which I've said so many times, is my favorite book, but it really, really is. And I think why it has shaped my feminism is the way it centered women's narratives in the text and the way it centered illness as well. And the, the way illness was spoken about and the way it brought up the many ways and the languages and the not languages and uh, all the, the many poorly strung together ways that we talk about illness. Um, and I just loved, I think I read Hot Milk at a time when I was breastfeeding and I was still in that very, like it was summer and it was, everything was still very milky and, yeah, and, and reading this text, I just thought, oh, my God, this, there's this young 25-year-old, Sophia, um, I think her name was Sophia Papastogiadis, and um, she had so much agency, and she felt a little bit invisible at times, and she felt a little bit uh, forgotten about and a little bit useless, I think, as well. But she just had she had this affair and she she kind of chased her sexuality alongside dealing with her mother's illness and yeah I think the the mother-daughter relationship the way that was centered was also just so fantastic but then while I'm talking about Deborah Levy I'm actually googling what her other non-fiction books are sorry um 
Okay, so then the other the other books that have definitely shaped my feminism, I would say, are um, the trilogy, the nonfiction trilogy that Deborah Levy has written. Um, uh, it includes the cost of living and real estate, and the way that she talks about kind of breaking down her family in the sense that uh, she proposes a divorce, and so she she goes from having this like you know big sort of family unit in London to having a smaller flat and, you know, just how that decision is so important and central to the task of her writing. And I just, I just love the way she talks about language and togetherness and raising strong daughters, although daughters are by virtue of being daughters, normally always strong. I actually hate that term. I don't know why I used it, but um, maybe independent daughters is a better way to put it but um yeah I think that's such a special uh, trilogy although I don't think it's a trilogy but I I do think the three books are related um and definitely just gave me so many ideas I think about the way we talk about space and ownership and owning land as well you know what it means to own a patch of earth or at least you know lease a patch of earth and and have it be called yours I love Deborah Lee, she's a brilliant writer. There's a really great interview with her. I think it's on the BBC Books World podcast or BBC World Book Club podcast talking about hot milk. And it was so interesting to listen to. I also really enjoyed that book very much. And I loved the, as you say, the mother-daughter relationship and how to navigate the agency within it. So yeah, I highly recommend people read that. The second to last question that I have to ask you is, do you have a quote or words of wisdom that you live by? You know, I think it's weird. Um, I, I never met my mom's mom. And so any snatches of her that I can get through other people's memories or, you know, through like sort of passed down objects or clothing of hers, I kind of like hold very close to my heart. And there's a saying that she had, um, two sayings actually. <laughs> she suffered from alcoholism and uh, she actually ended up passing away in um, a facility when she was trying to get sober. And she had a horrific death. And so I think there's there's two things that I often think back to, and they're quite different pieces of advice. And the one is, and I don't know if it's an AA saying um, as such, but she, she always used to say apparently that you can't fall off the floor. So that I've held many, many times, um, you know, where I thought I've hit rock bottom and, you know, just knowing that the, the only way is up really from when you're, you're at the very bottom and can sometimes be quite comforting. And then the other thing is that, um, and, and my mom would write this on little scraps of paper and pop them in my lunchbox for me um, as when I was a child. But the other saying that she had was um, stay the way you are and be happy. And it sounds very simple and it sounds like, you know, like not so much really, but I think, being told to stay the way you are is so powerful. You know, it's just, it's just so affirming and says so much about you being enough and you being okay. Um, and being happy, I'm not so sure about that part because I, I don't know, happiness hasn't ever really been something that's been easy to come by, for me at least. Um, but maybe being happy with yourself um, and that self-acceptance, I think maybe those are that's kind of the lesson or like the nugget of wisdom I take from that like little phrase it's lovely that your mom used to put notes in your lunchbox I'm definitely going to steal that idea what a cool 
cool way to affirm your child at every opportunity um, and to remind them that they are loved. I think that's beautiful. The one time I actually tried to put a note in my child's lunchbox and he was so <laughs> mad that I'd like messed with his lunch. He was like, don't ever do that again. <laughs> so I was able to turn my parenting on its head really with my child. He's not at all what I will never, ever. I don't know. It doesn't fit at all with my idea of parenting. I know. I, I suppose sometimes the things you do as a parent are more for you than for them, anyway. So. Totally, totally. <laughs> and then my final question to you today, Megan, is: Do you have any advice for other feminists or other parents on their journeys? I would say that I think the one of the easiest ways to feel supported on your journey as a feminist, um, especially when having a family, is to find authors who speak to you and who speak to the journey that you're on. So. Um, whether that's reading femi specifically feminist texts or reading novels that and poetry that affirms your your vision for your life and your vision for your child's life, or at least you know their wellness and their well being, I think that's very important. Then, of course, having a sense of community, you know, um, and I say a sense of because sometimes we don't have enough people physically close to us to form a community. So I also believe so strongly in online communities. I think my online community has saved my bacon so many times. And, you know, I have such real beautiful friendships and relationships with people online and, and with some people that I've never met. And I think that's uh, the online spaces, especially Instagram, um, has shaped my feminism so much. And I would say find accounts that, you know, again, like speak to you, um, follow accounts that, you know, that where the lives depicted look like your life, you know, where it's, where it's messy and, you know, where people are being upfront about their struggles. And, you know, I, I think it's so good to feel affirmed and to feel like, you know, you're not failing all the time. Because I think no matter how hard we try to be feminist, it's, we, we fail all the time. And I think it's the trying after the failing that is what's so important. Mm, very nice advice. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much as well for making the time to come on the podcast today and for sharing your insights and your ideas with us. I think it's really wonderful to listen to you and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been so lovely. I hope I haven't spoken total rubbish the whole time. <laughs> it's been minutes. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember it being that long. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really, your blogs, you, uh, sorry, blog, your podcast is so important. Um, you know, and yeah, parenting while feminist and feministing while parenting is like, you know, I think such important, such important things. So yeah, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.